broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. A very good happy Friday morning and the sun is shining to boot. We don't often see that in Melbourne. How about that weather out there this morning, Joel? Looks glorious. Absolutely we'll glorious. The sun is shining because the pies have just got up and beaten Carlton. <laughs> Nice. It could be raining outside, it could be thunderstorms and flooding, but right now in my world, the sun is shining. Well, that because it probably won't happen too often. <laughs> it rained last night, it, it rained goals. It rained goals. <laughs> what forward problems? 16 goals we kicked. They say we don't have a forward line. Well, Joel was very excited when he got back from the football, but um, a couple of Carlton supporters behind you were giving you a bit of grief last night. What happened? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> every now and then. Oh, God. Every now and then you just get those. And look, we had a Collingwood, to be honest with you, we actually had a Collingwood supporter uh, only about 20 metres in front of us ended up throwing a bottle, of, uh, sorry, a glass of beer over somebody behind him and security <laughs> got called down. So this is not just uh, against Carlton supporters. No. I think everyone was a little bit edgy and testy last night. But uh, Melbourne's my, clearly back. <laughs> my, my God, these two Carlton supporters, God, I reckon they could have uh, taken over 3AW the way they were commentating the game the whole day. Way too close for comfort. Yeah. yeah. And Brett, did it sort of feel good to be back, back with a crowd again? And Yeah, back- I loved it. I was surprised that they they only got just over 50,000 when they had the ability to get 75. I thought there might have been a few more that attended, but it was, yeah, good atmosphere. Good to hear the, the crowd cheer. It was, yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a good atmosphere. Right. Great to be there. And yeah. a good rivalry too. Collingwood finally ahead of the ledger, 125 wins to Carlton's 124. Oh, yeah. All-time Yep, all-time win record against each other head-to-head. And that is the first time in my lifetime that Collingwood has actually been ahead of the ledger. Wow, I, I couldn't remember how long. I, knew, I thought it was 20-odd years, but, I, you know, yeah, you're a bit older than that, Joel, so it's even longer. Yeah. Coming yeah. up to 40. <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Louie? Are you heading off to the football at all, or are you going to give it a miss at the moment? No, I'm uh, I'm off to the West Coast's uh, Western Bulldogs match at Etihad Stadium on on Sunday. Fantastic! So it'll be uh, my first time in a football crowd in a very long time. Yeah, uh, and that'll that'll be exciting times. Should be a good game. We're we're yeah. not tipped to win it. I think uh, the Bulldogs are looking. Yeah, it should be a cracker. Bulldogs are looking mighty strong this year. Mm. Yeah. Well, they were last week. With the crowds, though, is there the restrictions that are going to lift uh, today? There's new rest- restrictions lifting, isn't there? Is that does that mean that the crowds are um, up to more capacity, or does anyone know whether it's well, seventy five percent is the capacity at uh, at football venues at this point in time mm-hmm. in Victoria. Right. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, restrictions are in other states. Um, but uh, yes, and and also today is uh, the lifting of all work restrictions, all people are now, uh, all um, officers are now allowed to have 100% capacity back 
in their office. Uh, the government is also mandating public sector workers to be back at three least days. three days a yep. week. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, yep. We spoke yep. about this at work actually yesterday. So. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that uh, Anzac Day, we may actually have a capacity crowd for Anzac Day. And why would that be the case, Joel? Just the football? Well, yeah, just the football. I mean, <laughs> I it's thought you were talking day. about the War Memorial Service, yeah, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just so, for a moment. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to for see the Dawn Service and then down yeah. to the MCG. Yeah. Get a traditional Anzac Day going. That'd be good. Yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. Now, guys, we've got a little bit of news for our, our listeners, don't we, this morning? We've um, we've had a bit of a chat about the podcast and um, we're, we're going to take a small hiatus uh, because we've decided to revamp the podcast and come back in probably about six months' time with, with a, a new, new and improved format going forward. That's that's correct, Steph. Yes, we uh, to all of our loyal listeners out there, uh, the whole uh, one of you or two of you that uh, seem to be checking in each week. No, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Obviously, that's not correct. Uh, no, but we have a, a very small but loyal uh, follower and listener base, but uh, and we thank you very much for your support. Um, we are taking a hiatus, and the whole idea is to give ourselves time to prepare appropriately for a relaunch and a complete revamp of how we're producing the podcast. We're actually going to be doing this uh, in about six months' time. We'll be coming back with uh, some significant resources behind the podcast. We're going to be uh, significantly more organised um, and uh, we hope to deliver a production uh, that is uh, at the level that we believe that we should be operating at. Yeah, it's like been Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures yeah. type, yep, FM radio. Yep. Uh, maybe more three AD, maybe more AM radio perhaps. Uh, perhaps. Um, we'll have yeah. some better target market research as well. So we might all come out in six months' time as St Kilda supporters. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, no, but so the, the whole idea when we started this podcast about two and a, two and a half years ago almost now was to uh, have a crack. We, we, we went into this with no real idea about what to expect or uh, what format would work the best. And, um, and the whole idea was just to, to learn. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed the the current uh, format that we've been using, but we believe that we can do a bigger and better job, and we just need some time to step away, get some things lined up and prepared, so that uh, when we come back in about six months' time, uh, we're going to be hitting it big time. Now, I was just going to ask, how do our listeners uh, find out about the new and revised podcast? Where can they go to, to stay attuned with, with all this information that may come through uh, over the coming months? Very easy, Steph. Um, all you've got to do is type in United Global Capital into Google or ugc.net.au. Go to our website, subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, we uh, we put out uh, lots of written content each week, um, and we continue and we will continue to put out that content for the next six months and going forward as well. Uh, or you could follow us on social media. We have a presence on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, there's plenty of spaces on uh, plenty of areas on social media that you can follow us and keep up to date. Um, and every month or so, I'll probably be putting out some form of a short version of a video so that we can continue to communicate with our followers uh, that, so you can follow along exactly what, how I'm seeing the markets and where we're seeing opportunities. Uh, that'll be a short five, ten minute video every, once a month that you can uh, follow along. We'll be can posting you, can that you on social media. Can do a short Are you telling me to shut up? I'm no, just no. saying, I'm just asking. Steph, we're going to get a great editor. 
<laughs> well, thank you very much for that. No, not a problem. And um, so, look, we're, we're going to be around, absolutely. We're still going to be communicating with you, and we'd love you to stay in touch with us and follow us and uh, be around when we're there to relaunch bigger and better in about six months' time. Yeah, good one. And for those clients who are already uh, clients and investors with uh, with UGC, uh, of course, you already hear from us on a regular basis with the uh, with the investor updates and newsletters that Joel puts out. And for those listeners who are not clients of UGC, uh, why don't you consider becoming a client and look us up at UGC.net.au and then you'll be keeping in touch with us on a much more regular basis. Thank you very much. All right. Well, look, guys, we might kick off our first topic. And considering uh, Louis was just giving that little bit of a plug there, I'm going to start with you this morning. Are you going to pick on me now? A bit of an interesting topic for us. What are you talking about? It's it's Jack Welch. What what do you what do you have to tell us? Jack Welch is one of my favourite uh, management leaders by example, who's uh, who's written uh, a couple of books and is well known as a as a public speaker and public figure since he left uh, being CEO of GE back in two thousand and one. Um, he, I've I've got a number of favourites. Um, but some of them are, are research people. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is amazing, and uh, 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 other other people based in in research. Um, but Jack Welch is the one who actually did it himself. He worked it out himself. Uh, he had 20 years in the position of CEO, uh, and and learned all these things just on the go, and then was able to apply his principles and his philosophies. Uh, so for our um, last podcast for a while, I thought I'd. Uh, just focus on one of the things that Jack Welch uh, used to do and how that can apply to our, our listeners on this podcast. Uh, now, this is from one of his two books, which is called Winning. He's got a second book, which is called From the Gut, which is more of a biography, uh, whereas Winning is more of a, a layout of his, uh, his his major principles and, uh, and management philosophies. Um, he, he always says to differentiate between your employees. Don't treat them all exactly the same because if you do go about treating everyone exactly the same, well, then you've got this pool of people uh, who get similar treatment, whether they're great performers or not, whether they'll respond well to it or not. Um, So he says, treat them differently. And this particular policy that I'm gonna talk about has come under a lot of criticism as well. So let me talk about what it is. It's it's known as his 2010-70 principle. So with your workforce, your top 20% are your star performers and should be recognized as so. Uh, you should remunerate and reward them appropriately. Um, you should uh, publicly recognise them as the best in the business at what they do. You should also keep training those people to get better and better because your top 20% is where the majority of your results probably come from. You've then got this middle 70% of your workforce. And yes, you want to engage with them and you want to manage them as best as you can. And what you're trying to do is lift as many of those people up into the top 20%. And then the final 10%, you've got your poor performers. You've got your bottom 10% of your staff. And on an annual basis, their policy was to say, either you're going to lift up out of that 10% or you're going to leave. 
and they used to stick to that. Uh, now, as a um, uh, as a set of rules, there's a couple of ways that this can be implemented. And if you look at it in isolation, you can certainly see uh, or, or picture how that kind of rule could be put into an organisation and executed in a way which is um, not a very nice place to be around. But if you can execute it with a number of other pillars in this to support it, well, then you can have a really effective management system. So at GE, the, the emphasis was in having a really rigorous evaluation system, um, having a really good set of what we would now call KPIs uh, and metrics, which uh, which in 1980s and 1990s maybe didn't have the, the same kind of names or, or the same kind of data that we've got today, but, but they were at the forefront of having actual true data um, and uh, constant feedback rather than annual feedback on the performance of an employee. And they had this real policy around hiring well and firing fairly. And one of his big emphases is never firing anyone by surprise. By the time someone is being asked to leave the company, they've had so much management, they've had so many indicators that they are on this path, and most importantly, they've had so many opportunities to improve and receive training that really the, um, the pathway to exiting the business is because that person is just not the right fit mm. or it's not suiting their skills or it's not suiting their happiness or, or some reason for that. So as uh, it, for, for those listeners who are the managers or the owners of business, you can use this differentiation strategy to, um, to, to manage your workforce and have them well motivated um, to, um, to, to be the best that they can be. And the thing I like about the way Jack Welch talks about the, the bottom 10%, I actually like this concept about turning people over that don't suit the business. Because I think firing is probably one of the best communication tools for the rest of your workforce that you can use as a manager. Maybe that sounds harsh, but uh, no, no. I, I totally understand it because it does send a, a certain message, doesn't it, too, that yeah. certain won't be tolerated. So yeah, it does. So and there's another circumstance which he talks about firing as well. Uh, but if you're going to apply this 20-70-10 principle, then it really says if you're a bludger, this is not the place for you. If you're not going to be suited to the role, whether it's because you don't want to be and you're not trying or if it's just not a match, well, then we're going to have you out the door in a certain period of time. What does that do for the rest of your workforce that stays? It makes them so much happier that yeah. that 10% layer of which of what I describe as crap, um, that's just removed from your organisation. It makes everyone else a lot happier that they're with similarly minded people with a good set of skills and a really good attitude. The other thing he says about firing is you can make a, uh, a firing decision publicly if you want to send a message. And that's really good for instances where you've got an employee that is not living by the same values or not behaving in an appropriate way or not living up to the ethics that you expect. 
And that's the kind of firing that's good to come out of the blue in the moment that uh, that that kind of event happens. So the minute someone is out of line in a way that is completely against the values of your company or, or the ethics of your profession, you fire them. And again, it's it's only half about letting the actual person go. It's more about the rest of the workforce that remains and the message that it sends to them. So I think that's a really important thing from a, from a leadership and a management point of view to, to, to fire well and fire in the right circumstances. Mm. Yeah. Yep. 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 I, I agree. I mean, we, look, it's always unfortunate that you get to a situation where it becomes evident that somebody is not a right fit for your organisation. Um, but it is important uh, that you feed the roses, water the roses and get rid of the weeds. And uh, we've had our own experiences um, over the years where it's been necessary to, you know, sever our relationship with certain employees. And I think that uh, when you're doing that, um, what we've got left behind are people who are committed to the culture and the cause and the direction in which the organisation is heading. And those people who could be potentially disruptive to that are no longer there to seed thoughts that otherwise wouldn't be there. Mm. And I think I think in a smaller organisation, it's much easier to be able to handle this kind of thing. Um, certainly, I've sat on both sides of, of the fence, being in a smaller business and a larger one. Um, and sometimes I would say the larger ones have much more uh, stringent rules around how you can and can't um, can't fire or how you have to give uh, that kind of uh, feedback to staff. And it makes it more complex uh, to to actually do the firing or or give the give the open communication. So I think a smaller business, it's um, much much easier to to do what you're talking about there, Louis. Well, there are rules. There are rules also that make of it course. easier for smaller businesses. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, in Australia, if you've got 15 or less employees, um, then uh, you're not then then those employees are not covered by. Mm. Uh, certain fair work uh, provisions. As mm. soon as you tip over the 15 employee level, um, all of a sudden there's there's various legislation that uh, makes it a little bit more difficult to get get rid of somebody. Yeah. Mm. So we we always put our staff on a six month probationary period, um, and that six month probationary period we use to really assess whether or not there's genuine buy into yeah. what the organisation is trying to achieve and. We, rather than calling it a firing, it's really just saying to many of the people who have you know, who have departed, it's really um, it hasn't been that many, but mm. for for those people who have departed, it's really been more so a mismatch of uh, ideas and culture rather yep. than their ability to perform the job and the task. Yeah, and I think also six months is a really good probation period because I really do feel, um, you know, three months you just don't really still know that staff member very well and that six months gives a really good time span to, to understand whether they are going to be a fit and also gives them time to learn the role and, and see if they are going to excel at it. And, and, and let's not just think of it from the benefit of the organisation as well. There are many, many employees who I would believe after they have probably left our organisation who have, not many, many, once again, it hasn't been many, but those who, <laughs> those who have, who have left our organisation, I, I, I genuinely believe that they would probably be feeling better about leaving because what we were trying to achieve as an organisation wasn't really a match for what they were mm. looking for within an organisation. Hence why we have that little bit of push-pull and, and that, that that tension that wasn't working yeah. out in the first place. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, Joel, would you, like a, would you like a bigger shovel? 
<laughs> so so the other point of view i uh, i want to bring to this is uh, for those people who in their organizations are, are not the managers and, and not the leaders what does this mean for for you um well it means that you can apply this to yourself and if you are self-aware enough to say well where do i fit in in this organization am i in the top 20 percent as a star performer uh, am I in the bottom 10%? Uh, that should probably um, be identified as not being the right fit um, or, or I'm not really performing in the way that I think I should be. Um, or am I in that middle 70% where people kind of notice me, but I fly under the radar and I just do my job and that's it? Because again, coming back to this being a podcast on finance, from a personal finance point of view, one of the best things you can do is to have a job that pays you more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more that you can increase your earnings, then you have the ability to, conf- to convert your cash flow into accumulating assets. So what do you need to do in order to raise your income, in order to be uh, uh, higher on that financial security ladder? Be really nice to your boss. Well, yeah, yeah. Be really nice to your boss. That's one thing. Uh, But these days, more and more employers are looking at the actual results that you achieve. Mm. Um, More people are becoming uh, uh, workers in results-based organisations. And there's, I think there's fewer places to hide these days. Uh, So... Uh, I think what employees can do, and I think what also employers can do, if an employer can actually have a structure around how they manage their employees, this is why small businesses are exempt from uh, from a lot of the uh, unfair dismissal rules, because they're too small to have these kinds of systems in place. Yeah. Jack Welch comes from a, a huge organisation that hired um, hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. Um, so, but the point is, if you're going to apply this 2070-10 principle, you need to have a management system and an evaluation system for your staff to manage them down a certain pathway. And if you're an employee, well, then you should probably be looking for companies that have the opportunities for promotion and have these kinds of management systems in place where there is good reward and real reward for real work that you get to do. So, Louis, I've got to... I'd like to throw it open a little bit more of a broader debate here if I can, because we were actually having a chat about this at the football with one of our uh, friends last night, and he works at a, a very large government organisation here in Victoria. Which you will not name? No. <laughs> okay. And uh, we, we were talking about um, diversity and diversity uh, within, you know, management roles and senior leadership roles and uh, and, and the like. And, and he was making the claim that that government organisation still had a lot of white males at the top of the helm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he felt as though that government organisation needed to do more to, to become more diverse. And I, I, we, we were sort of having the chat that I said, well, look, if you have a look at UGC, we have a very, very diverse uh, representation of, of men, women, different cultures, different various sexual orientations and the like. And, uh, um, and, and the reason why we've got this diverse 
workforce is not because we set out to have a diverse workforce it's because we had we hired people on merit we we run a meritocracy in this business and and the reality was that you know white males aren't necessarily always the best people to be doing a certain job in fact many many times in our uh, organization we found out that it, it, they weren't and they never got hired <laughs> and hence why we have such a diverse workforce at UGC and it wasn't because we set out to necessarily have that diverse workforce it was the way that we hired through meritocracy that led us there yeah mm. but I, I also think in in um in in their defense and I, I know the organization um very well um unfortunately with some of these government organizations and not all because i've, I've worked across as i've said many of them that, that don't do this and are in one at the moment that's a very diverse workforce but the problem is a lot of people in government tend to remain because they would see that as a cushy job and people that have been there have been there for many years so that workforce remains and remains under those conditions and doesn't want to move off so it's a massive culture shift um, that the the organisation has to take on, and and also it unfortunately some of it is also a fact that it has to actually die out at some point. So I, I agree, and that we were making that point as well. If you think about it, it's probably because you know these government organisations have very staid people who work Correct. in those organisations, and very. they're the most senior people because they've been there the longest, and yeah. they're but it through necessarily natural mean attrition and promotion. Right. It, it does. It's. It, I guess, Louis, what it comes back to what you're talking about, how people should be managed on on the merit or the efforts they're putting into a business. And I, as I said to you before, a lot of the time it's very difficult for these large organisations to change their HR policies to align with that, particularly yeah. around government organisations. So. I think what I, my, my my point was to him, though, is that if you operated more like a meritocracy, you would ordinarily have more diversity because the reality is that, you know, people of all different cultures and walks of life are going to permeate into the organisation as a result of hiring based on merit. Part of the problem, Joel, is when you look at uh, a meritocracy and the measurements of performance, you got to ask, who is doing the measuring and yeah. who is doing the perceiving of the performance because you've still got humans who make the decision at the end of the day so if you've got an organization that is already filled management positions with white males and they're looking at the the performance data uh, but they're also looking at who is going to be successful in this next role and mm -hmm. I, I think hiring these days is pretty good but the issue more today is more the promotion aspect. And this is where women experience the glass ceiling. And this is where we see white males continuing to dominate in organisations. And they uh, they are thinking of, well, who is going to do really well in the next position? Mm -hmm. And it's about the people who are there and their biases, mm -hmm. with many biases being unconscious biases. And so if you've got person A, um, and they perform well in certain areas A, B, and C, and you're ranking them against person B who's got better metrics in X, Y, and Z, well, then how do you compare the two, and how do you do it in a way where you don't have these um, biases coming in, or at least you're aware of those biases? And I think that is more the issue. So, Steph, I don't think there's any HR policy which says we don't hire females or people of colour, um, but there should be HR policies um, that encourage... Oh, Diversity, well, yeah. 
Well, you could have ones that encourage diversity, and that's going for a particular problem to mm. uh, to, to fix a diversity problem. But mm. diversity is not a problem of productivity for the business, apart mm. from missing out on great people. Diversity mm. is more a problem for the values. Mm. But mm. I would argue you can fix diversity by having no focus on diversity at all, but by having good training in place for managers on how to promote and how to be aware of their biases. Mm. And how to assess merit fairly. Correct. That's right. So I would, uh, that would be my argument. Yeah, yeah. I think, I I do honestly think um, the bigger the business, the the far more complex um, the problem. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and and yeah. I, I think you're right. I, and I certainly think the younger generation uh, see it that way. But, uh, yeah, long-term government organisations, as, as you said before, people stay forever. It's very, very difficult to move people on. Yep. Um, and it becomes more complex, I think, with with younger managers coming through and fresher ideas, that, that always helps. But um, it is like navigating a very, very big ship and getting the whole thing to turn, which is which is harder. So, I mean, yep. my thing is particularly um, what you touched on with uh, women trying to get ahead and everything else like that, I would say we almost need to be a little bit braver too with roles. And, and if you're not getting where you want to get, um, it's to look further afield as well and, and, and go to an organisation that actually matches uh, what you're looking for on a cultural fit as well. Because often I think male or female, people tend to stay in roles because it's comfortable and they aren't looking to jump jump to the next opportunity because they're almost scared of, of what they could potentially find. And I think you have to be brave uh, if you're looking for a new role and, and you do have to, to shop around and find an organisation that, that, that culturally matches up with, with what you want mm, to get ahead. Mm, that's right. And, and it's human nature to be more fearful of the situation that you don't know. Mm than the situation you're currently in, no matter yeah. how uncomfortable it is. Mm. Um, so that's where you got to adopt the philosophy of uh, feel the fear and do it do anyway. It. Yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah, good topic, though, this morning. Really liked it. All right, guys, we're going to take a very short break and we'll come back to you after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. All right, and welcome back. Now, Brett, I can't see you this morning, but I am going to pick on you. You're going to speak to us today about uh, using an advocate. Yeah, I I would like to. So I I thought the timing in in talking about this, if if we're going to be off air for a little while, uh, it's important for people to know if they want some property guidance, where they should go. And the the rise of of advocacy in Australia has been uh, been growing quite a bit over the last five to 10 years. I I don't think um, a lot of advocacy was around sort of 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, But to explain what an advocate is, a few listeners, and I, I know I certainly have watched it, um, it's, it's quite prominent in America on shows like Million Dollar Listing, if, if you've ever seen episodes of that, yep. where 
basically it's it's where a real estate agent is is actually out there doing the searching and all the transaction work on your behalf to try and make sure you get the best outcome so an advocate can play two roles they they can be the buyer's advocate so if you're looking to buy a property they can be your representative and and do all the work for you to get the best outcome when buying but they can also work uh, when you're selling and, and be an advocate to sit between you and, and figure out the best selling strategy and, and engaging the best selling agent. So they really do have a, a great role to play. Uh, important when, when engaging a buyer's advocate or a, a vendor's advocate, one of the first criteria is that they've got to be licensed. Um, so they can't just be someone that's got an interest in property and, and understands it or, or knows the process. They actually need to hold a real estate license to be able to do the role appropriately because there are laws around it. And if they're going to negotiate uh, any of the terms around a transaction, they, they do need a real estate license. Uh, but in terms of that, the, the major benefits uh, that come about when using a buyer's agent, probably the, the biggest one, uh, I believe, is actually the time and the stress they save. So for a lot of people, when, when buying a, a home, uh, and potentially it's an investment property as well, it's such a significant financial transaction that it does create a bit of tension when actually trying to make the, the, the final decision. Uh, and especially for home buyers that are, are out there trying to compete with other home buyers and, and having to go through multiple inspections and give up their Saturdays if they've got a family, it can be quite taxing. Uh, whereas a, a good buyer's agent will actually do so much of the research once they understand the brief of what you're looking for. They give you your time back. They don't waste your time going through properties that aren't going to suit. Uh, and they just help ease the stress by also making sure that the, the budget and the value that you've got, they can actually get you access to the property that fits all that criteria. And in particular, a good buyer's agent will get you access to properties that others, uh, others won't see or you may not get access to if you're not connected like a good buyer's agent can. So, yeah, can I ask, um, Brett, just on, on what they do, uh, is there a certain retainer that I would give over to a buyer's agent? I mean, how does it work? Does it, is it for a certain period of time that you give them money to sort of go out and look, or is it only only when you actually find a property that you're going to go through with? How does it? How does the pricing structure work? So, so a lot of the time a buyer's agent might have uh, a range of services. So yep. if we start at the top, which is you're engaging them to do everything for you. So in other words, that means they'll they'll understand the brief of, of what you're looking for and, and they'll probably question you to, to get further clarity and even help you get, uh, get a better understanding yourselves of exactly what you're looking for. Uh, but then from the time they fully understand the circumstances and the goals, the, one of the first things they'll do is obviously ensure you're ready. So making sure you've got your financial affairs in order and, and have a, a, a network of other people around to facilitate, such as lawyers, um, uh, inspectors, other people that will help to actually finalise the transaction. The last thing a, a buyer's agent wants to do is get started in doing a lot of work towards getting you purchasing a property when you're not in a position to actually be able to settle on it. Sure. Uh, so if they're engaged in doing the full service, which is is doing all of the searching, doing all of the, the research and the negotiations all the way through to the settlement management, they'll typically charge a percentage of, of the price of the property. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually it's it's between 2 and 3% is, is probably the, the going rate across the country for most advocates. Uh, and typically, when you engage with an advocate, you will sign up in with an agreement that gives them some form of ex exclusivity for a period of time. 
Uh, so typically that would be somewhere between three and six months because the last thing they want to do is uh, is be engaged and be doing a lot of work and have you going off and buying a property elsewhere and they've wasted all their time. So sure. typically there will be an agreement there that states that you're you're only going to buy a property through them for that period of time. Uh, and a lot of the time you may pay an upfront deposit just to just to put a bit of skin in the game and, and to help them offset some of their costs if travel is involved or a lot of research is involved in doing so. But typically you'll pay maybe a small deposit upfront uh, and then the balance of, of whatever the fee happens to be, if it were a, say a 3% transaction cost, you would pay the balance once you're unconditional on that property and you're a guaranteed purchaser. Yeah. Uh, that's that's for the full search. So advocates can also do um, a lesser service where it might just be you've found the ideal home, but you just don't have the confidence or, or the skills and the, and potentially even you, you just strapped for time and you really want to try and get someone in there to negotiate for you. So an advocate will, will step in and do the negotiation and, and try and secure that property on your behalf once you've identified it. Uh, and of course, the fee for that would be would be reduced compared to the full advocacy service. Uh, typically, that might be down at, say, a 1% um, fee of, of whatever the transaction is, or it could just be a flat fee, just a fixed fee, depending on how the advocate runs their business. Uh, and also, there's, there's purely the, the bidding service where uh, you've identified a property, you really want to purchase it, but... Again, you might not want to be visible at an auction because of, you know, you might be a, a private person or a public person that doesn't want to be visible, uh, or you just might not have the confidence to bid at auction, or you don't trust your own skills and strategy versus a professional. Uh, so an advocate can can be in and actually do the bidding for you purely for a fee as well, where they they might not have done any of the other work, but you've engaged them purely on the day in the same way a selling uh, a vendor engages an auctioneer who is not necessarily the selling agent. They're purely engaged on the day to run the auction to get you the best outcome. Right. So, and, and do you think, um, Brett, that advocates are sort of becoming um, more more popular in recent years? Uh, definitely. Uh, yeah. The the rise of advocates in, in recent years is is significant. Uh, the the amount of I mean, if you do a Google search now, I, I would imagine page one is now flooded with uh, with a whole host of advocates trying to pitch for business. Uh, whereas years ago, I would imagine the only, there was only a few of them around and, and most of the, the searches would only give you information on what an advocate can do. Yeah. So I, I'm aware of, of a significant number of advocates. But again, it's just because there's a, a lot of them out there doesn't mean they're all going to do a great job. Yeah. So, so, so the industry um, in that area is not particularly regulated. You can or can't be um, licensed or how does that work? No, no, no. You, you must you be must licensed be? if you're going to negotiate on a property. So, yeah. Okay. It definitely needs to be a real estate agent to to position yourself and play the advocate role. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I flagged that earlier is that there are some organisations we've heard of in the past that might act as if they can give you property advice or, or help you in facilitating a transaction. But if they don't hold a real estate licence, more than likely what they're trying to do is is have you buy a property that's new or off the plan where they're getting a commission from a developer. They're not really doing an advocacy. They're, they're not... Trying yeah, to just buy a plug, property plug in that particular house. property. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's usually an ulterior motive because there are, unfortunately, with um, with the way the industry is with uh, with sales commissions, especially in in new developments and off the plan, is that uh, there are a lot of referral commissions that get paid and they can be quite lucrative. So there can be a lot of people that are trying to position themselves to to help people buy property when really their motivation is to just to get the commission. Yeah. And, and what about actually finding an advocate? I mean, what's the best approach? Is is it through uh, a financial advisor or how, how would you find one that you sort of felt kind of comfortable with? Because I imagine you do a Google search and, 
you know, it's quite quite overwhelming. Where do you where do you sort of begin? Look, I I think that the in my experience with with every professional service I've found, word of mouth is always probably the best way. So if you have a trusted person in your network, whether it's your financial advisor, accountant, lawyer. I think if if you've got a good relationship with a professional service provider, I would be asking them first and foremost, because typically they they would have uh, if if they're providing a good service, they will have a network of people that are operating at a similar level, and they'll have a good understanding of of who's capable and who's not. So mm-hmm. that would be the first way. Um, outside of that, I mean, yeah, everyone goes to Google, but uh, I would probably screen a couple if if that was your choice. Uh, I mean, of course, we're biased, obviously, within UGC. We've got UGC Global Property, which is purely an advocacy service. So uh, by all means, come and come and speak to us at, at any point in time. We, we believe we do a great job. We, we buy properties uh, all around Australia. We've got a real estate license in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Um, we've got a network of, uh, of agents and advocates that we tap into. Uh, and we've got a great research methodology as well. So... By all means, we believe we're great at it, but we're not the only ones out there. Uh, and anyone that's looking to enter the market, if especially if they're inexperienced, I, I think getting an advocate on board for your first property purchase or any property purchase is, is a really sound thing to do. Can I just jump in with something there, Brett? Um, yeah. Word of mouth is is a great way to uh, to, to figure out someone that you can trust. Uh, but I would then add uh, an, an interview criteria to it uh, because you'll have certain advocates that are good in in different ways. Um, so so you want to suss out, I guess, where your advocate's experience is and, and what their process is. For example, if you're looking to buy an investment property, well, then you would want to make sure that your advocate has a certain research capability to really go through the data and make sure that they're going to um, find you something that ticks uh, a certain set of investment criteria. Versus if you're going to use an advocate to buy a home of your own, uh, well, then maybe your criteria would be a certain presence in a certain group of houses. Uh, oh, sorry, a certain group of suburbs. Um, so so it, it depends on your purpose for buying the property uh, and uh, and then seeing if your advocate ticks those boxes. Yeah, totally agree, Louis. I think, and you're right though, there there are differences between advocates that specialise in investment and advocates that, that specialise in owner-occupiers and home buyers. Um, typically, when, when you're a home buyer, the majority of the time you do want someone that knows that local area and is well-connected because that's where the best opportunities can come from. Yeah. yeah. And, and just before we close out, Brett, anyone that, that is sort of thinking about um, using an advocate and is thinking, oh, gosh, it's too much money, what, what would you say to them? Well, the, the money side is, is really something that should be, uh, should be dis- well, not so much discounted, but, but insignificant compared to the value that, that you're actually getting out of it. If you engage a vendor advocate that can find you a property off market that you can purchase before it gets to any sort of competitive uh, marketplace or auction, that can save hundreds of thousands of dollars in a lot of instances. Uh, and typically, a fee of somewhere between sort of ten to twenty thousand dollars is insignificant by comparison to that saving. Mm. Plus, how much do you value your time uh, in terms of how much time and effort you're going to put into this? Uh, and also, the insurance policy. The, the one thing that a, a good buyer's agent will do is is not just help find you the best deal, but they'll make sure that there's no skeletons in the closet with a property. Make sure that the the contract is is got all the key terms and has been vetted appropriately, so that you're not taking any undue risks. 
they make sure that the property doesn't have any potential maintenance issues or or headaches or or even that there's there's potential development that's going to happen right next door that you weren't aware of. So they're kind of like a, a massive insurance policy that's also out there to get you a discount. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like that's really sound advice, actually, and it's something that I would never have, have sort of considered without knowing more about it. So, yeah, thanks, thanks for updating us on that topic. Sure. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to take another very quick break and we'll come back to you after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03-8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. All right, and welcome back. Now, Joel, you're going to give us a little bit of an outlook for stocks. Yeah, so given that uh, we're going to be going on this six-month hiatus, it's probably the last chance I get to uh, update our listeners with respect to how we're seeing markets and what we expect over the next six months until we return. Uh, but I think it's important just to sort of recap where we are and uh, and then run through some important data points that uh, will hopefully linger in the back of your mind so that you have comfort and confidence with uh, how you're handling your share portfolios if you're doing it on your own, or at least you have some comfort and confidence with how we're managing your share portfolio if you are uh, having us uh, manage it on your behalf. So since uh, since February, we've spoken a little bit about, uh, or a fair bit about, the uh, rotation that has taken place. And just to give you some sort of sense of magnitude, uh, this rotation has really been out of the recovery leaders uh, from the global, uh, sorry, from the uh, COVID-19 global economic uh, decline. Um, And now what we're seeing is this reopening trade and this this move of money out of the more safer, steadier, longer term, sustainable growers to those businesses that are more economically tied into the economic performance of the global economy and the reopening of global economies around the world. In the last five weeks, we have uh, we can see how rapid this change has actually taken place by looking at a simple um, a table that Lowry's Research, a, a, an institutional research house that we follow, uh, they've put out this study on the best performing, strongest sectors over the past five weeks, and right at the top on their on at the top of their relative strength power ratings is the energy sector. Mm-hmm. Makes sense when you think about what's been going on with uh, w- with what would likely happen as the global economy starts to open up. We're going to have more goods floating around and, and traveling around and flying around the, the global economy. So you need fuel and energy to, to power that transportation. We've got financials were the second. So on the Lowry's power ratings table, energy had a rating of 12. Uh, financials came in with a rating of 8. 
Uh, financials were second in line with the biggest movers over the past five weeks with their power rating, uh, with, with their movement that took place. Financials make sense as well because as you start to see the global economy reopen up, interest rates start to increase at the long end of the yield curve. We spoke about the yield curve and the 10-year Treasury bond, uh, if not last week, a couple of weeks ago. Banks are now more profitable because uh, with interest rates increasing at the long end, they're able to make greater interest rate margins on every loan that they make. Uh, because they borrow from us on the short term, lend to us on the long term. So that interest rate differential is much more profitable for financials. Basic materials came in third with a power rating of four uh, behind financials at eight and energy at 12. Once again, it makes sense. If all of a sudden the global economy is going to reopen up again, there's confidence to build new projects, new housing. We can see what's going on in the housing market right now with uh, prices rising as a result of low interest rates and pent up demand for real estate because really there's been zero transactions that have taken place or very few transactions that have taken place over the past 12 months. Uh, people are doing uh, home renovations. They're realizing that they may actually need to do that extension because the house is not big enough for them or they're just sick and tired of looking at that crack in the wall or that uh, off color paint that they needed to do that they never got around to because they were too busy prior to COVID lockdown. Uh, industrials were then the next in line. Uh, industrials are, 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 is an obvious one because as the global economy uh, opens up, we're producing more goods and manufacturing more things. And then consumer cyclicals, discretionary. We can now get out to our brick and mortar retailers and put our clothes on and try our shoes on and, and go out and uh, enjoy Without a Without a mask. Without a mask, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy a coffee or a nice, you know, breakfast out at your local cafe and uh, we can start to spend a little bit more money. So these are all the biggest movers in terms of industry uh, and sectors uh, over the past five weeks. Now, the biggest losers at the other end uh, was healthcare. Makes sense. Why do you need a steady, you know, steady grower in healthcare when all of a sudden you've got this economy that's opening right back up again? Money's going to float out of those more safer, steadier, more dependable, recurring buying uh, industries into the ones that are going to get the biggest, you know, um, shot in the arm from uh, not the shot in the head. No, not the shot in the head. <laughs> shot in the arm. Um, those are the businesses that are going to uh, be sold off during a rotation where there's a major cyclical uh, rotation out of uh, defensives into uh, consumer, con well, into the more economically sensitive sectors. Uh, outside of healthcare was information technology. With so healthcare was a negative six rating. Information technology was negative five. Utilities at negative four telecoms at negative three and consumer staples. Now, the interesting thing is that we tend to focus most of our attention on all of those bottom uh, five uh, industries. We tend to like <laughs> buy more stable, less cyclical, uh, more visible revenue earners. Um, and, uh, and these are the businesses that tend to perform very well through good and bad economic times. But in this current rotation that's taken place, uh, the, uh, the, the, Obviously, the focus has gone on to more of the uh, economically sensitive sectors. But we've now gone through that and we're going through this adjustment phase right now. Uh, but really, the question is, where to from here? And that's important to what we've got to do now is start to think about, OK, where are we heading from here? What is the global economy looking like? And if we're going to see higher prices as a result of an improving economy, can higher prices occur without those other five sectors participating? Mm. 
And back in 2016 and early 2017, I made the exact same argument while we were going through a similar rotation when Donald Trump was elected into power on the back of major tax reforms and on the back of a major stimulus program that he was introducing on the back of his election win. We saw this exact same rotation take place for about a three, two to three month period of time. But by the time 2017 had actually finished, all of those sectors that have been laggards over the last five weeks became the leaders again. Because what happens is there's only so much that these cyclical companies can adjust for the turnaround that's going to happen in the very short term in the economy. Eventually, investors will start to think about where where are going to be the biggest and fastest and more dependable growers over the next three years and five years. And that then turns back to those industries that we tend to play around in more often. So we shouldn't be concerned if you are a growth investor investing in these industries, you shouldn't be concerned about uh, another major COVID bear market at this point in time. And to give you some understanding of where we are right now, uh, the, the the World Bank is currently forecasting the United States to have a GDP growth rate of 6.5% in 2021 to the end of this year. They're expecting GDP to be at 3.3% in 2022 and 2.2% 2 .2 in 2023. These are extraordinarily robust economic growth rates for, a, for the world's largest economy. Uh, the US still today represents around about a quarter of the world's GDP, and the businesses listed on its stock market represent around 65% of the world's total equity market valuation. Now, with those sorts of numbers backing up the, the, the backdrop for how we're investing over the next 12, 18, 24 months, it's very difficult to see how a, uh, how a major bear market may get underway. And in fact, this rotation is suggesting that this is not bear market, this is a very healthy market, and markets rise over the medium to longer term through money rotating into different sectors all the way through to new higher prices. This is a very healthy sign. But if we're looking at outside of just the US and the next, well, the actual biggest economic block in the world is the European Union, and the European Union has been a horrible place to be uh, operating a business in over the last 12 or 13 years coming off the back of the global financial crisis. Even the European Union, which is larger than the US, is expected to grow its GDP growth by 4% by in 2021 and by another 4.1% in 2022. Mm. If we're looking at Japan, Japan has been you know, mired in economic malaise for the best part of 30 years now, since uh, 1989. Well, since uh, it is last in front of Carlton. <laughs> yes, uh, it's expecting a GDP growth rate of 3.9% uh, over the next 12 months. If we look at China, China is expecting a GDP growth rate of 8.1% over the wow. next 12 months. Uh, we can look at Asia as a whole, Asia, the, the up and coming, the rising tiger, uh, a, a growth rate in the Asian region overall of 6.9% over the next 12 months, 5.5% over 2022, and 5.4% in 2023. I think you're getting the picture, right? And even here in Australia, while we're perhaps not at the same level of robustness, probably because, in all honesty, we never had the same level of decline uh, that some of these other areas had because of the way that we managed our, our COVID-19 uh, situation over, over the last 12 months. Even Australia is expecting very robust, a healthy GDP growth of 3.5% for the next 
uh, 12 months and 3.5% for 2022. So all things being equal, um, this, these are not the conditions that you would see uh, the sorts of stocks that have been rotated out of over the past five years continuing to perform poorly moving forward. Mm. These are these businesses, although there's been a rotation and an adjustment, we are going to see higher stock prices if these GDP growth rates take place. And the only way you're going to be able to see a broader uh, rise in prices is if these other five sectors that have been laggards over the past five weeks start to join the party. Otherwise, you're not going to see the higher prices that indexes should be reflecting on the back of these really what are quite extraordinary growth rates. I've got a question for you, though, Joel. When you look at these um, these markets, do you, is, is there any chance that you'd invest in, in um, Asia, uh, any Asian stocks or, or you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we have a fair bit of our portfolio exposed to Asia. In fact, we've got uh, some businesses in our portfolio that are that we've bought in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. We've got businesses that are listed on the US stock market that are actually Chinese or Asian focused businesses. Mm. Uh, I think one of the, I've said this before, but I think one of the most important things to understand about the US stock market is investing in the US stock market is not just investing in US companies. Uh, most of the world's influential businesses, you know, think of Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, uh, many of Europe's bigger, most influential businesses have some form of a listing on the US stock market because that is the home of uh, global capital. Right. And and what about these these stocks like the energy sector or, um, you know, industrial sector? Do you think that you'll invest in any of those as well and mix up your portfolio a little bit or are you going to just sort of stick to your your game plan? There may be some businesses within those industries that we may like to uh, take advantage of, but if you're talking about traditional energy uh, or basic materials businesses, um, typically not. We like to invest in businesses that have uh, much more robust less volatile revenue and earnings streams. And when you're investing in energy and basic materials, they're very capital intensive. We like capital light businesses. Mm -hmm. They're very cyclical in terms of their sensitivity to the economic cycle. Uh, We don't like cyclical sensitive businesses. We like uh, independently growing, independent growing businesses that are are rising and, and, and improving and growing bigger in size as a result of something that's specific and unique to their business not tied into a commodity cycle of some sort. Um, so it would be very difficult for us to ever envisage making a recommendation in those couple in those industries. Um, industrials, we wouldn't rule that out, but it would be a specific type of industrial type of business, mm. uh, probably something that's heavily backed by some form of patent, new technology, new type of uh, product that they're bringing to the market. Uh, consumer discretionary, yes. Uh, in fact, consumer discretionary, we, we do look at from time to time. It depends on the type of product. Uh, you know, for instance, um, Apple, we did recommend Apple uh, to clients about five or six years ago um, when it was coming out with its iPhone 8, I believe it was, or iPhone 7 when it first launched its uh, big new large screen format um, where we thought that would be a blockbuster. Uh, so yes, consumer discretionary there's uh, and leisure, we, we find that they can have some big movers and some big performers, particularly if you get a really hot stock with a really hot product um, and, uh, and they're creating or building a new industry and leading a new innovative industry. Um, but typically we stay away from the more economically sensitive energy resources, basic materials. All right. 
Good update. Look, guys, we're going to have to leave it there because we're right on time today. So we're going to throw to our last segment, which is you can't be serious. I am going to pick on you, Joel, this morning, considering you've uh, just finished with your topic. What have you got for us this morning? Well, my you can't be serious this week is uh, to do with the health of several people who I know who are riding motorbikes just huh. this week alone. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> Just this week alone, I've learned of uh, two, uh, one colleague, Nick, who uh, listens to this podcast. Nick, I hope you're feeling well, mate. Uh, all banged up with a bit of a motorbike accident. He's been in hospital for the past week with a badly broken leg. Oh, dear. We've got a, another uh, colleague of ours, Terry, who uh, took his bike for a ride about two or three weeks ago and, and once again rather innocuously fell off the bike but really did a big job on his leg. He's been in hospital now for three weeks. Uh, and then yesterday morning, I was riding. I was driving to the gym at around about uh, six, quarter past six in the morning, and sure enough, I've just uh, I've seen a motorbike uh, on the on the road with police just arriving and uh, and and the person on the ground in a badly banged up way. And here I am thinking about going for a motorbike ride on Sunday for the first time this year. <laughs> Good investment for me to sell the motorbike. Might just not be there when you go to get it. Huh? Uh, and right. in fact, the the place that we are planning on going to, the last time I was there, one of my Break friends we were riding with broke their leg uh, at this place. Yeah, and he's still laughing about it and wants to go. That's uh, that is you can't be serious. But anyway, moving right along. Louis, what have you got for us? I've got yet another winner from the global pandemic situation. Uh, and the winner is Goats. goats. Goats outside of uh, a town in Wales. They usually live on uh, on the local local mountains and hills. Um, but now that the town is mostly abandoned, these uh, these herd of goats are moving into the town and just moving around pretty much free range. Um, there's uh, photos of these goats uh, looking like they are shopping at the local supermarkets, um, lining up for a coffee uh, and checking into the local hotel. Wow. And, and Louis, uh, rumour has it that I've seen Tom Brady and Michael Jordan floating yeah. around there as well. Yes. <laughs> Tiger Woods might be joining them. Yes. <laughs> uh, all the goats are doing well. Absolutely. Now, Brett, what have you got for us this morning? Uh, I'm going to share a story of, uh, of Domino's uh, latest advertising that caught the eye of a number of people. So, they had a special on their pepperoni pizza that uh, a lot of people have called the penis pizza. Oh, <laughs> right. gosh, that's yeah. a feeling. Their strategic... It's always got to turn. It's got to turn badly at this time of the morning. So go for, go for it. <laughs> All right. No, it's it's purely to do with with their placement of the pepperoni slices. They uh, they have a proprietary way they like to do it, which puts it uh, in the shape of a phallic symbol so that they fit <laughs> on each slice. So. <laughs> One clever person's called it the pecaroni, um, <laughs> and another one said, talk about a meat fest. <laughs> I love it. That's a good one. Well, look, guys, we're going to have to wind it up there, but um, thank you very much for uh, for being on the team uh, for, for the last couple of years. It's been fantastic working with you all and to our loyal listeners for tuning in. It is not goodbye forever, so we will be back in um, in six months' time. Uh, Brett, just another plug for how people can uh, stay tuned to uh, what's going on with the podcast. 
Give us a plug well, for UGC. Yeah, so look, two, two main ways. Obviously, Joel mentioned it before. The UGC website and signing up to our newsletter would be the best way. You, you'll get constant communication about, uh, about where we're at. And as soon as the new podcast is launched, you'll be first to know. Obviously, the current podcast, the Investor Exchange, the website for that will still be around. Uh, and as soon as the new one's launched, whether it is under the same banner or we change something, we'll be certain to, uh, to update that website and any of the subscribers there. Yeah, fantastic. Well, looking forward to uh, back to it in six months' time. And uh, in the meantime, guys, enjoy your sleeping on a Friday morning. <laughs> oh, I'll look forward to that one. <laughs> Have a fabulous week or weekend. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.